The human heart can be so fickle. It loves to get us chasing after things it thinks we need. It thinks we simply must have or it believes will fulfill us. But how often do we find ourselves chasing after things that ultimately let us down or fail to deliver what we thought was promised? In the 1830s, Alexis de Tocqueville, a French aristocrat and political scientist, wrote a book called Democracy in America, based on his experiences from an extended tour he took of the US. Among a number of insightful observations that have made his book one of the most quoted books about the United States, de Tocqueville commented that many Americans he encountered seemed to be haunted by what he called a strange melancholy in the midst of their abundance. Most Americans, he said, believe that prosperity can quench their yearning for happiness. But, he concluded, such a hope is illusory because the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the heart. De Tocqueville's observation was not just relevant to the United States in the 19th century. It is just as relevant today. So many of us yearn for happiness and fulfillment through things like material possessions, careers, partners we believe will complete us, as well as other incomplete joys of this world. Despite us living in the wealthiest nation on the world in, at one of the most prosperous times in history, certainly at a time when most of us enjoy levels of prosperity beyond anything de Tocqueville could have imagined, according to the National Opinion Research Council's General Social Survey just released, just 12% of Americans describe themselves as very happy. This was the lowest level by far since the study was started in 1972. De Tocqueville's warning about putting our hopes in material things wasn't original. He was echoing words from a sermon delivered by a first century rabbi to his disciples on a Galilean hillside. The heart will never be satisfied if it seeks its fulfillment in earthly treasures, because the treasure that really fulfills can only be found in God. We are in the middle of a series of talks on the Sermon on the Mount, discussing some of the most insightful and impactful statements made in human history. The Sermon on the Mount has been called God's Manifesto for Human Flourishing. It's the doorway into the radical new life we're called to live out in the Spirit when we put our trust in Jesus and enter his kingdom. Through it, Jesus set out the glorious nature of life in God's kingdom as it will be in the age to come when all evil has been banished. But he wasn't just talking about life in the distant future. 
Jesus is the embodiment of God's coming kingdom, and he welcomes his disciples to live and flourish in the good of that kingdom right here, right now, right in the midst of this broken world. The words in the sermon are keys for us to enjoy the shalom of God, to live fulfilled lives enveloped in God's peace. Storms may rage around us, and they surely will, but those that belong to Jesus are secure in him. I love the way the psalmist describes our security in God's care in Psalm 121. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let me stumble. The one who watches over me, he will not slumber. The Lord himself watches over me. He stands beside me. He watches over my life. He keeps watch as I come and go, both now and forever. We are secure in Jesus and we will flourish not just in the good times but even through the sorrows and pains of life. But to live in the good of all that Jesus offers requires that we have a right view of his kingdom. Transformed people live transformed lives and Jesus is pretty explicit in calling out what that means. It means a wholly different way of living in and relating to the world. Jesus gets us. He understands the human heart. He knows how we are naturally drawn to things that will never fulfill us. And he knows the things we are all susceptible to the attitudes and behaviors that rob and destroy peace and prevent us from flourishing in life. So in the Sermon on the Mount, he lays out not a set of rules through which we might win God's favor, but words of wisdom and deep insight into the human condition. Words that challenge us to discover how radically transformed our lives will be if we dare to follow them. We've reached Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Until this point in the sermon, Jesus' focus has mainly been on how different his disciples' transformed lives will look compared to the attitudes and behavior of the religious establishment. Now he pivots to explain what will set his followers' lives apart from the world. Let's read the story together, beginning at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, 
your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Just like the rest of the sermon, these words must have stunned his listeners. To the first century religious and political crowd, those with treasures on earth were the blessed ones, the privileged, the powerful, and the prosperous. Material wealth, health, and position in society were understood to be the result of God's blessing and favour. The poor and the marginalised, they were the ones living under God's curse. So what is Jesus getting at here? In just a few sentences, he reveals the fallacy of their understanding about the things that matter in life and reflect God's blessing. He exposes the source of their motivations, loyalties and desires, and he challenges them to understand and address the impact these things have on their lives. Charles Spurgeon called this passage a grand motive for keeping our desires above groveling objects. Explaining this, he said, the heart must and will go in the direction of that which we count precious. The whole man will be transformed into the likeness of that for which he lives. Where we place our treasures, our thoughts will naturally fly. It will be wise to let all that we have act as magnets to draw us in the right direction. If our choicest possessions are of the earth, our heart will be earthbound. Our hearts are fickle and naturally chase after the things we count as valuable, but we end up becoming the things we value. So we'd better make sure we're looking to the right places to invest our lives. Let's dig into some of the implications of all of this. In the first of three metaphors, Jesus speaks to our treasures. He said, Do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our treasures are the things we value in life. They're the things that occupy our thoughts and our time, the things we focus our minds, emotions and wills on. For some people, that might be their home, their car, their career, or their 401k. For others, it may be their relationships, their friends, their spouse, or even their children. For others, it might be their status or their education 
or their politics. And for some, maybe for most of us, it's money and wealth. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with any of these things. Indeed, these very same things can be the source of incredible blessing in our lives. The issue is with the way our hearts can relate to them. God designed us to find our ultimate value and identity in Him. But the tendency of our fallen human hearts is to find our value and identity in temporal things. When we do this, things that God intended for our blessing become our treasures. They become the places where we find our value or identity rather than in God. For example, if we find our value and identity in our wealth, which many do, we will do all we can to make more and more money, but we will never have enough. So we find ourselves reprioritizing our lives around making and protecting our money. We feel great when the markets are up and in despair when they go down. If we put our value in our status or position in life, in what others think about us, our hearts are driven to make us do all we can to be more popular. For example, for many, how they're viewed by others on social media has become core to the way they view themselves. Which is fine when friends and followers keep rising, but when they don't, their core identity is compromised, leading to despair and often deep unhappiness. The chase for popularity through an insatiable need for more friends, views, likes and followers has driven a real increase in mental health problems in our culture, especially among younger people. Basically, if we make our value about things, that means that life is great when these things are working for us. We're getting promoted. Our kids are doing well in school. Our friends are inviting us to parties. Our political party is in power. Our stocks are up. But life becomes not great at all when the stock market crashes and our 401k becomes a 201k, when our party loses the election, when we get canceled, or when we don't get that job we think we deserve, or when the kids get suspended from school. We end up valuing our lives and centering our identities on things that Jesus said are going to fade and be destroyed. Things that aren't stable at all and were never designed by God to be that. Sinclair Ferguson put it like this. What our Lord says here is devastatingly simple. When he says it, it seems so obvious. If we would only think seriously about our possessions, we would realize that they belong to a passing world which offers no security. In fact, seeking security in this world and in its possessions is a recipe for producing anxieties rather than relieving them. 
The more we gather possessions in order to feel secure, the more we feel we need them in order to be secure, and then the more we need to guard them to maintain our security. Therefore, the less secure we are. It's a familiar saying that wealth does not buy happiness. Here, Jesus explains why. Happiness depends on lasting wealth. That's why Jesus said to lay up our treasure in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy them and thieves cannot steal them. But what does that mean? First and foremost, it means stopping right where you are and turning to God. It means putting Him at the center of your life, allowing Him to be your only true treasure and letting Him direct your life. It means trusting Him with your life and being satisfied with His assessment of you rather than the world's. And by the way, He gives you an A. He's not like us. He doesn't assess you based on your achievements in life, good or bad. When He looks at you, He sees the righteousness of His Son and He's delighted. Now for some of us, that means getting off the world's treadmill and learning to rest and find your delight in God. For others, it means chasing after God rather than the things of this world. For all of us, it means holding on to our earthly treasures lightly, with open hands and generous hearts. They're gifts from God to be enjoyed and used for His purposes. Paul told Timothy to challenge the wealthy people he knew he'd encounter, people like most of us. As for the rich in this present age, he said, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they might take hold of that which is truly life. Laying up treasure in heaven is not an appeal to altruism or asceticism. Jesus doesn't demand that we give up stuff so we can be more acceptable to God or to win his favour. Rather, it is only as we turn our lives and our loves over to God and find our true value and worth in Him that we will find true fulfillment in life. No matter how appealing the treasures on earth might seem, they will never truly satisfy us. They're temporal and they will let us down. They will deteriorate and be destroyed and they will take us down with them. Jesus uses his second illustration about eyes and light to reinforce his previous point, explaining more about the workings of the heart and its impact on our lives. The eye is the lamp of the body. 
So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? These words are more difficult for us to understand, but to first century listeners, they would have been crystal clear. Theologian Jonathan Pennington argues that the eye would have been viewed as a metaphorical window between the inside and the outside of a person. What's going on inside us can be understood through the things we focus on outside of us. In other words, the things we value in life direct our lives and expose what's going on in our hearts. Eyes were also understood to be what enabled the body to find its way. And the eye's effectiveness in leading a person in the right direction was dependent on it being sound, on it working properly. The word sound here is the Greek word haplous, which was used to suggest undivided loyalty. In this case, meaning that sound eyes are those that are undivided in their commitment to direct the body in the right way. The eye directs the body towards its purpose in life. A good eye towards the light, towards undivided loyalty to God. The bad eye towards darkness and the things that will bring destruction. This paralleled and reinforced Jesus' previous argument and pointed to his concluding and perhaps most poignant metaphor. Laying up treasures in heaven and laying up treasures on earth do not make good bedfellows. We have to choose. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The heart can only go one way. We can't choose both. We all face this double bind. Even though we know the way of God is the right way, the draw of the things of this world is so strong, we want both. Jesus knew this, so he spelt out the implications rather bluntly, using money as his example. We either store our treasures with God, focus our eyes on him, and serve him alone, or we're not actually serving him at all. So, in conclusion, according to Jesus, there are just two ways we can live. We can live with a view to accumulating things of value on earth, or we can live with a view to accumulating things of value in heaven. Treasures laid up on earth will never lead to true flourishing and fulfillment in life. They never deliver what we thought they promised. As de Tocqueville said, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the heart. Only God can meet the deepest needs of our hearts. Only God can satisfy. So 
the mark of Jesus' disciples is that their eyes are on heaven. They found their value not in the perishing things of this earth, but in God himself. And they measure their behavior and attitudes by the effect they will have in heaven, not their performance on earth. In your small groups, please consider the following questions. What are some of the things we might find ourselves laying up as treasures on earth? What are the implications of laying up treasures on earth? What are some ways we might lay up treasures in heaven? Why do you think Jesus makes us choose between treasures on earth and treasures in heaven? Are there any treasures on earth that are controlling or directing your life that you'd like prayer and support to address? Pray for one another. <laughs>